if any of you are joining us for the very first time, again, we want to say welcome. We are so glad that you are with us this morning. If any of you have been out of town for the last few weeks, you may not know that we have been in a sermon series on the parables. We have been looking at the stories that Jesus told to help illuminate spiritual truths, things that were probably too hard to grasp if he just said them directly, things that were hidden in some ways. And so we've come to a number of the parables, and as we've come to these teachings of Jesus, these stories of Jesus, we have employed a a grid, a paradigm for us to approach Scripture. Not just the parables, but all Scripture can be thought of as learn, be, and do. Now, what do I mean by that? Pastor Drew's been mentioning over the last few weeks that we can always come to Scripture asking, what can I learn? God, what do you want me to learn from being in the Word, from being with you this morning? Would you help me understand what you want to teach me through Scripture? And learning is never just for the sake of knowing. Learning is always for the sake of being, becoming. And so we can ask God right now, God, what do you want me to be in light of this Scripture passage? And finally, being is never disconnected from doing, being doers of the Word. And so we come to the Word and we can ask God in response to this message, what do you want me to do? Learn, be, do. This is the model that we want to be employing for all of us every time we go to Scripture to be asking these questions and to be expecting answers from God, to be open to what He will say to us. So let's open ourselves now to the Word of God. We're looking at the parable of the talents. It's found in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. It's on page 807 in your pew Bibles if you want to turn there and keep your Bibles open. We're going to be looking at a few things right around this area. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 14, hear the words that Jesus spoke. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward saying, master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, 
reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from him who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. And as for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. These are the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples. Some of them are foreign to us. Some of the, the contemporary feel is lost to us. So we've asked the Bel Air Drama Department to put this into our time frame and tell us what this might sound like today. Hello, and welcome back to our podcast. Today we are talking with one of LA's primary real estate investors, Ingrid Tucker, and the three people she entrusted with her money. Please enlighten our audience, Ms. Tucker. Certainly. I gave my personal realtor, Ms. Cooper, $2 million to invest in any property that she likes. It's no surprise that I do expect her to sell it for a great profit. I knew just the location, location, location. Ms. Cooper, what did you do with the money? I immediately bought a large rundown house, walking distance from the beach in Santa Monica, fixed it up, and flipped it. Excellent. And your next investment, Ms. Tucker? I gave my contractor, Mr. Plum, $1 million. That's half of what I gave my personal realtor. Nevertheless, I do expect a handsome return. I had a great idea how to multiply the investment. And how did you invest the million dollars? I went to a real estate auction in Encino. I bought a small house on a large piece of land and split the property into two lots. I made repairs to the first home and then built a second. Both houses sold in a bidding war. And finally, how much money did you give your last investor? Um, Against my better judgment, I gave my brother-in-law, Mr. Ham, $350,000, and I do not want to be disappointed. Your money's always safe with me. Where did you find a property for $350,000 in LA? Well, eventually I found something in the Riverside area that's lousy with foreclosures and short sales. Thought I might lose money on the deal, so I took the safe bet. I think that's everyone. Now, you all came here today to reveal your earnings. Ms. Cooper, would you mind telling our audience how much money you made for Ms. Tucker? Certainly. I flipped the house for $4 million, doubling my investment. Oh, well done, good and faithful realtor. (laughs) You have proven yourself trustworthy with my money. I would like to welcome you as a partner with me in charge of flipping houses. And Mr. Plum. I'm happy to report that both Encino homes sold for $1 million each, twice what you gave me. 
Again, well done. Good and faithful contractor. You have shown true resourcefulness. I would like to welcome you in partnership with me in charge of new construction. Mr. Ham. Everybody knows that foreclosed properties are in deplorable condition, no flooring, appliances, or fixtures. So I considered the purchases, repairs, closing costs, potential necessary bribes with the down market. And uh, knowing you'd be super angry if I lost any of your money, I thought the best thing to do was just to keep it in my safe. So in order to make you happy, I'm returning your entire investment to you intact, minus gas money. Mr. Ham, I told my sister that you were lazy and corrupt. You did not even try to invest my money. I am taking what I gave to you, and I am going to give it to Miss Cooper, and you will no longer be over any of my properties. In fact, you from now on report directly to Mr. Plum, who will only use you for demolition projects. And there you have it. Thank you, Ms. Tucker, for showing us in this volatile market how to make wise investments. <laughs> for to all those who have, more will be given. But from him who has nothing, even that will be taken away. That's the summary of the story that Jesus told. I want to ask, how many of you are rankled by that? Anybody that it's kind of like… At 9 o'clock, there were people saying, yes, thank you, yes, thank you. I know that it, it, it doesn't sit entirely well with me, when, especially if I read it out of context. It makes me feel bad for the guy, right? Bad for the slave. Does anybody else kind of feel sorry for him? Except God, who Jesus wants us to know, the master is God, God doesn't seem to feel sorry for him. And so it's hard to reconcile what we know about God, how we feel about the slave with the truth of Scripture. It makes me want to remove myself, what Jesus is saying, to stand in judgment of it in some way because I feel so emotional about it. I feel that it could change my opinion of the master, change my opinion of God, and I don't really want to do that. So, so, before we get too carried away, before we let our emotions run away with us, let's commit to doing what we said we were going to do, which is to enter into Scripture to learn. When we enter into Scripture, any of the pages of Scripture, we need to become investigators, detectives. We need to stop and we need to do a complete 360. We need to look around at who is here, who's talking, what are the circumstances, what time of day is it? And so we can come and ask these questions. Now, to answer the first question, where are we and who, are we, who is Jesus talking to, we actually can find very specific answers just one chapter prior to this. If you just flip the page over and go to Matthew 24, you'll see that Jesus has been in the temple with His disciples. And as they come out, the disciples say something about the temple, and Jesus says to them, truly I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another, it all will be thrown down. So the disciples kind of brew on this and think about it, and later that day, 
In chapter 24, verse 3, it says, when he, Jesus, was sitting on the Mount of Olives, so where are we? We're on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately. Who is Jesus with? Twelve, just twelve. That's who came to him. And they asked him, saying, tell us, when will this be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The disciples picked the topic. They are the ones that asked Jesus the question. You're talking about the temple being destroyed. That means we're talking about end times. Come on, Jesus. We're your inner group here. Tell us about when this is going to be. Help us get ready. Like, this is big stuff. And for the next two chapters, Jesus tells his disciples everything that he can about what the end times will be like, what his coming will be like. He starts out by saying, you've got to beware that no one leads you astray. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be false messiahs that will come, and many will fall away. He is telling his own disciples, the twelve, they need to be careful. Now, when is this going to happen? Jesus tells them about the day and the hour no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So Jesus says, guys, if I knew, I'd tell you, but I don't know. So, for Jesus, this question of when doesn't become so much a question of what is the day and the time so that I can make sure that I've got my Bible opened and I'm on my knees in prayer. Jesus says, I can't give you that information. If anybody ever tries to give you that information, if Jesus doesn't know it, they don't know it either. So, the question really becomes a question of readiness. Jesus recognizes in the disciples that they want to know what they can do to be prepared for the coming kingdom of God. And so Jesus says, I can tell you what it'll be like. And in verse uh, 1 of chapter 25, he starts out by saying, the kingdom of heaven will be like this. And he tells them that it will be like bridesmaids who go out to greet the groom at the moment that they are part of this bridal procession. But at the moment that they should have been awake, they fell asleep. At the very moment that they should have had their candles lit and prepared to burn for more than a day, some of them were out of oil. Some of them were ill-prepared. Some of them just weren't ready. And then he goes on and says to these disciples of his, I tell you, it's as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. And he begins to tell this story. But before we get ahead of ourselves, I want to ask one more question. One of our primary questions, when is this happening? When is Jesus telling his disciples this story? And we have the luxury of flipping over a page. Flip to chapter 26 of Matthew. And here we find that after spending a long time teaching about the end times, telling them these parables and these stories, the very next words, it says, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. This isn't just any time that Jesus chose to sit and teach his disciples. This is Holy Week. This is Tuesday of Holy Week. This is two days until he is betrayed, arrested, and killed. Jesus knows this. Jesus tells the disciples this. So why does he want to spend time talking about that the kingdom of God is like money 
and how God gives it away at his good pleasure. Why does God, Jesus, want to get it, the feelings that this evokes in us, these feelings of resentment and bitterness and that maybe God's not fair, what is he doing? It's quite interesting that it goes on and it says in chapter 26, verse 6, that while Jesus was at Bethany, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment and broke it over him, anointed him, spilled it over him. And what is the response of the disciples? It says the disciples saw it and they were angry. And they asked, why this waste? Just a day before, Jesus had been talking about when people's hearts get wrapped around money, when they're aware of how much is being spent, how much it costs, and whom it's being wasted on. And here they are a day later, the day before Jesus is arrested, and they are angry about this show from the woman. They are so focused on the cost of it that they miss that the kingdom of heaven is being ushered in right under their noses. And isn't it interesting that Judas, one of the twelve, is here during all of this conversation. Judas heard the story that Jesus told him. You know, it says that Judas was the most angry about this waste of money because he was the keeper of the coins. He was the keeper of their bankroll. And so he feels like this was a really extravagant waste. And immediately, what does Judas do? Judas, in verse 12, goes out to the chief priests and says, what will you give me if I betray him? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. There's actually a lot to do with accounting and with money that's coming immediately, immediately upon these disciples. There's actually a lot that we can see about the attitudes of our heart that develop how quickly they rise to the surface, no matter how close we are to Jesus. And so Jesus spends his time talking about the parable of the money. So let us go back to the parable now. Let us take a shot at what Jesus may be saying to us today, even as he said to his disciples way back then. One of the first things that we notice is that it says that the man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them according to his ability. Now, some people, some commentators say according to his ability might actually be God's ability. God has the ability to choose, and he did. You got a problem with that? Take it up with God, which is what the slave does. But more commentators say that ability actually has to do with the word power. The word that's used, the Greek word for ability is dunamin. It's the same word that is the root of the word dynamite, dynamic, dynamo. It means that there's power inside of something, power that's coming from a source that's internal. Dunamis is related to the Holy Spirit acting in Jesus. When Jesus is doing things beyond what any human could do, it's the power of God in him. So let me ask you, does it change how you hear this parable if it read, he gave to each one according to the power within him? Does that change it? Let's think of it this way. What if somebody came to you and said, I have zero power to multiply any good thing that God has given me. I have no power whatsoever to do anything good with that. Do we believe that statement's true? 
What can, imagine who you could, anybody that you could imagine saying that. And is there some place that we might say, I, I, that just doesn't feel true to me. I mean, there's something you can do. You have breath in your lungs. If you have breath in your lungs, that is breath that God has put there. That is the power of God in you. And so it doesn't feel quite accurate to say, I have no power. So each was given according to the power that he had. Now, we begin to understand the point of view of the master. It makes us a little bit angry, right, to think of somebody saying, I couldn't do anything. I was completely victimized. I was given nothing. The master has some feelings about that. And now we can see why he is so brutal with the third servant. He says to the servant, even if you thought you couldn't do anything with what I had given you, even if you thought that was true, why didn't you give it to a banker who you know could have done something with it? Even that would have been credited to you. But you did nothing. You took whatever I had given you. You took the power within you and you wasted an opportunity. Interesting that the disciples were angry about what had been wasted with the costly oil. The master gets a little angry with what is wasted in human life. What has been wasted? How did the servant come to such a different place than the other two? Well, I believe it's because he knew exactly what the other two had been given. It says that the master calls all the slaves. It sounds like they're all in the same place. And how great is it to be the first guy? Now, the, the bad sketch was, for those of you, it's the Beller drama department. It's like, not the bad sketch, the great sketch. The sketch that we just saw, the numbers that they use are not exaggerated. What is a talent? A talent is a measure of money. In the time that Jesus spoke, it could have been worth 15 years' wages to the slave, one talent. Some people translate this as the parable about the bags of gold. Here's one bag of gold, here's two bags of gold, here's five bags of gold. In today's economy, do you know what a bag of gold could be worth? $250,000 at least. To have five bags of gold, five million dollars? Two million dollars, it's a ton of money, no matter who's receiving it. But how cool is it to be the first slave? And God says, here's five talents, here's five bags of gold, go and do with it. These two guys are thinking, well, this could get pretty good, like, this is awesome. And the second guy, okay, you get two talents. By the time they get to the third slave, he now has an expectation that's been set up based on how God, how the master has treated these two people. He thinks he's getting his payday. He is like psyched. And the master gives him one. And from that moment, from that moment, he despised what he had been given because it was a meager gift compared to the others. Meagerness only enters our mind as a concept when we are comparing to someone else. Do you know that they did a, a survey of lottery winners, and they took million-dollar winners, $10 million winners, and $100 million winners, people that had all felt that they were lucky and happy and blessed and all this money had come into their lives, and they took all of these winners and they put them in the same room to see how they related to each other. Well. 
As soon as the million-dollar winners realized that they were on the low end of the totem pole, they weren't that happy anymore. They left that room unhappy because they did not have as much as the $10 million winner. You see, to tell a story about money gets at how we count things, how we measure things. We are so aware of the amount of money that we have in our checking account, in our banking account, in our investment account, right? We keep track of it. We count it. We know how we're doing. We want to know how we're doing by measuring our money. It's human nature. It clearly always has been. Do we take as much time praying and reading Scripture as we do counting our money? Maybe that's a question that Jesus wants to ask. When we count and when we measure, we are standing in a state of mind that speaks of meagerness and not abundance. There was a great novel written in the 1920s, a beautiful movie was made out of it called Enchanted April. And in the Enchanted April, we meet a woman named Lottie, and Lottie is in a loveless marriage to a man named Malersh. Yes, Malersh. That's a European name. We find that Lottie, uh, there isn't anything beautiful in her marriage, anything loving. Malersh goes to work. He brings home the bacon. She fries it up in a pan. She keeps the, the house clean and the kids quiet, and that is the content of their marriage, a very tit-for-tat, utilitarian marriage. And just because she's been able to scrimp and save and literally hide money away from Malersh, she decides with a friend of hers that she deserves something good. And so she and her friend rent an Italian villa. And they go to this place for a month. And you've got to see the film. It's beautiful. I mean, the ocean and the way the light is hitting the water. And there's bougainvillea and flowers everywhere, and you can just smell the scent of the flowers, the soothing nature, everything about it is gorgeous. And as Lottie finds this extravagance of beauty, she starts to come alive to herself. She starts to come alive to what it means to live a life that feels fulfilling. And what's the first thing that she does when this starts to blossom in her? She invites her husband to join her. And her friend gets very upset with her and says, why would you have invited him? Why did you invite that meagerness into our abundance? And Lottie has this beautiful reply. She says, the great thing is to have lots of love about. I don't see, at least I don't see here, though I did at home, that it matters who loves as long as somebody loves. I was a stingy beast at home. I used to measure and count. I had this queer obsession with justice. At home, I wouldn't love Malersh unless he loved me back. Exactly as much, absolute fairness. And as he didn't, neither did I. This is the place of meagerness. This is the place where our love can become meager when we try to count and measure it. And when we step into abundance, we no longer can even remember what meagerness felt like. But what grips us in the meagerness? You see, not only did the slave come to despise the gift, but the slave came to despise the giver. It's a very short step between the two. The servant steps up to the master and boldly, he says, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man. Where did this come from? 
I'll tell you where it came from. It came from however many years the master was gone and left these three slaves to their own doing. This guy started telling himself something that he thought to be true based on the perception of these two slaves. He started telling him that that master wasn't very nice, that that master was a harsh man. You know, not only that, but that master didn't even make his own money that he gave away to those guys. You know what? This master is a jerk. I don't like him. As a matter of fact, I think I hate him. So when he steps up and says, Master, he's going easy on him. Master, I knew that you were a harsh man. I knew that you reap where you haven't sowed. I know that you didn't scatter your seed. And so I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Let's look at this progression. From hating the master, never a safe place to hate the master. Why? Why does he become afraid? His own thoughts are what scare him because he still lives in the master's home. He still eats from the master's table. He's still protected by the master's guard. What is he going to do with all this outrage and fear when he still lives at the pleasure of the master? And so he became very afraid, afraid of himself, afraid of the master, and he went and hid what he'd been given. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. I don't want to lose it. I don't want to use it. I just want to know where it is. And so it is that many of us take what has been given. Another wonderful movie came out in 1984. Amadeus swept the Oscars. Best picture, best director, best lead actor. Amadeus is a story about Salieri. And Salieri was a composer. This was based on a true story, but not necessarily what happened, taking, imagining what might have happened. Salieri was a composer, a very acclaimed composer in the court of Vienna, and he had been given extraordinary gifts in music. And when we first see Salieri, he loved God. He would tell God, I just want to compose for you. I want to write beautiful things for you. Give me the talent to do it. Salieri loved God until Mozart showed up in the same court. And all of a sudden, here's this young guy running around, cackling like crazy, but he has a gift that everybody knows is a divinely given gift. Only an angel could write this, only something miraculous, only the power of God moving in you could come up with this. And Salieri decided that he hated not only Mozart, but the master too. In a scene where Salieri talks to God, he's sitting by a fire in a very dark room and he's looking at a crucifix, Jesus nailed on a cross for him, thinking about how much he should have been given, how little he got, and how much that Mozart had. And he says to the crucifix, he says to God, from now on, we are enemies, you and I. Because you choose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy and give me for reward only the ability to recognize the incarnation. Because you are unjust, unfair, unkind, I will block you, I swear it. I will hinder and harm your creature on earth as far as I am able. I will ruin your incarnation. A scene 
of someone so overcome by envy and jealousy and resentment and hatred that he condemns himself. His gift isn't even accessible to him anymore because of what he's done. He's so focused on destroying the gift that God gave to someone else that he never returns to the gift that God had given him. An extraordinary gift. The servant wanted to give back what he had been given. He says to the master, here, I know right where it is. I'm going to dig it up. I'll blow off the dust. It meant nothing to me. I didn't really want it or need it in the first place. Clearly, it meant more to you. So here, have it back. God doesn't want back what he gave us. God wants to give good gifts to his people so that we enjoy them, so that we have creativity and productivity and that we know that we have been made in the image of God. He doesn't want that back. But why did the slave give it back to him exactly, exactly the amount of money? He did not want to be in debt to this master. He didn't want to owe him anything. You're here to settle accounts. We're good. You've got back what you gave me. Story's done. Except the story's not done. Because we're not just looking at money. We're looking at the attitude of his heart. The disciples asking, what can we do to be prepared to be ready for the coming kingdom of, the God, of God? It has to do with the attitude of your heart with what you nurse and nurture in here, with what you tell yourself about God, with what you tell yourself about others. Are you ready to receive the kingdom of God? You see, this slave was no longer able to receive the kingdom of God. This slave condemned himself. The same parable is, stole, uh, is told in Luke. Luke remembers it the same way Matthew does, but Luke changes just a, a subtle word he has the master say, your words have condemned you. You see, this isn't a story about God condemning. It's about us, our fear, our rage, our resentment, making us so small that we can no longer expand to receive what God has given us and being so prideful that we will not be in debt. For Jesus Christ, looking at two days away from his death, looking at a disciple whom he loved, Judas. Is it possible that Jesus told this story for one person? Is it possible that Jesus was trying even then to reach the heart of Judas, a heart that didn't harden overnight? Judas, for whom Jesus would never be enough. The biggest thing that Judas could imagine was that Jesus would overthrow Rome and restore Israel. That was as big as his dream. But when Jesus looked like he wasn't going to do that, Jesus wasn't enough. He needed something different. He needed something more. Except there isn't anything different or more. Jesus is the way by which we must be saved. And if we can't put our faith and our trust in him, then our own words condemn us. God, what do you want me to be as a result of hearing this teaching today? This story that Jesus told his disciples, what have I become? Do I recognize that sliver 
of the lazy, hateful slave in me? Do I acknowledge that I have anger toward God? Anger that isn't going to go any place good for me. You see, God's not going to apologize to you. If you have taken the data of this life and come up with the answer that he's not good, that he's not kind, and that he doesn't love you, God knows exactly what it cost to purchase your life. God knows exactly how many heartbeats Jesus had left. God knows exactly the amount of blood that poured out of Jesus' wounds. God knows exactly what he's given you. God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do with this? Well, I'm going to ask you, is there anything that you are hiding from God, something that he's given you, an ability, a talent, money, people? Is there something that you are hiding from God, not giving it to him so that he can multiply it through his power, but that you're hiding away from fear? Is there any place in you where you ever decided that God is meager, that God is unkind? I'm going to ask if you can lay that down today. I'm going to ask if you would allow God to heal your image of God, to take that lie away from you, to bend you back to the truth. Will you submit your pain, your anger, your resentment? Will you open yourself to the fullness of life? Will you open yourself to the joy of the master, of enjoying what you have, of reveling in how much he loves you? Will you take that step and enter into your master's joy? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the words of Jesus are meant to cut like a knife, dividing joint from joint, marrow from bone, finding us exactly where we live, knowing what our hearts and our wounds have wrapped around. God, we thank you for the words of Jesus that pull us out of our comfort zone, that bring us into a state of readiness, readiness to receive the kingdom, readiness to love you, Jesus. God, I pray over these brothers and sisters, over all of those in the hearing of my voice, that if anything has moved them away from you, that you would heal all anger, resentment, and bitterness, that you would replace it with your joy. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.